Thank you, James. Uh, I had the great privilege of bringing my family and having uh, dinner at James and Marilyn's house. Uh, what was it? Two days ago. Two days ago. So they have a wonderful property in uh, Tagish, and they're running a Bible study uh, each Saturday in their home. Uh, but while we were there having dinner, uh, the kids went and played outside. And um, I don't have permission to say this. Can I share this story? I got permission now. So we're having, we're having dinner at their house, and great dinner. James, Marilyn, great cooks, great hosts. Uh, they, have some, they have some horses, they have uh, some toys to play with. So we, after dinner, go and visit the horses. I'm getting my stuff on. I get ready to go outside. And uh, Marilyn's coming back, and she's just holding her eye and looking in pain. I was like, oh, are you okay? I was like, maybe someone threw a snowball at you. You guys are having a snowball fight. She's like, oh, I got headbutt by a horse, and I think I'm bleeding. I was like, oh. That's, that's really serious. And then James sees her and is like, oh, well, if it's only three stitches, I can do it. If it's more than that, we're going to have to go to the uh, nursing station, <laughs> which is in Carcross, I think. So they got to go to Carcross to get stitches. So it turns out she needed more stitches than three, and uh, they went to Carcross. And they kept saying, sorry, sorry, we had to cut the dinner short. I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure getting headbutt by a horse and having your head split open is a pretty good excuse but yeah, just grateful for James and for Marilyn. If you see her upstairs, maybe don't bring it to her attention. But you know, <laughs> it's there. That's why it's there. So <laughs> just yeah, just you know, look away. <laughs> oh yeah, we've been going through a, a year-long series through the Bible, and we're wanting to take major teachings and major stories of the Bible and and teach you and and teach ourselves what it means for our lives. It's called Gospel Foundations. And so this week, today, we're on uh, the book of Jonah. Some of you may be very familiar with the book of Jonah. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. And the, the, the story of Jonah is an interesting story. There's many points to it, um, but what I want to teach us is that we, we can't hide from the will of God. You can't hide from the will of God. And so I hope that as we go through the story that I can explain who Jonah is, why it matters in the Bible, and why this matters for each of us. And so we'll be just in the first uh, 17 verses of chapter 1 of Jonah. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to ask me, and we can give you one as a gift. Um, these Bibles are courtesy of the Gideons, and thank you, Christian and uh, Judy, for getting us these Bibles. So we're in verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. I'm going to pause there for a second. Jonah. In the original language, in the original translation, his name means dove. Like a dove. Like, whoo, whoo, dove. If you didn't know what a dove was, you're welcome. Jonah means dove. So you would think, oh, dove is so innocent, so cute, so cuddly. That's not the reference. Hosea chapter 7, verse 11, it describes a dove in a different way. It says, the people of Israel have become like silly, witless doves. First calling to Egypt, then flying to Assyria for help. Going to their enemy first and then going to another enemy enemy for help. So Jonah means witless, silly. He's the son of Amittai. What does Amittai mean? 
The son of Amittai means son of my faithfulness. Son of my faithfulness. So dove, son of my faithfulness. So you'd think this is a very faithful man, but this is all ironic. He's not this wise dove. He's actually silly, and he doesn't live up to his name as faithful. Now he's asked to go to a place called Nineveh, which we'll learn about. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And why this is important is because the Assyrian Empire and their armies are at this very moment in Jonah attacking Jonah's people, Israel. So they're enemies of Israel. So God is saying, get up, dove, son of faithfulness. Go to Nineveh and announce my judgment against them. And this is Jonah's job as a prophet. He speaks for God to people, and God has given him a task. And Nineveh is not a pleasant place. We read a description of Nineveh in Nahum, chapter 3, first four verses. It says this, What sorrow awaits Nineveh? the city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels. Horses' hooves pound and chariots clatter wildly. See the flashing swords and glittering spears as the charioteers charge past. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, Mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. Nineveh is not such a great place to go to. We continue verse 3 in Jonah. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Jonah hates the Assyrians. He wanted God to judge the Assyrians. He actually wanted God to kill them. And so he goes in the opposite direction. Now, where he is in Joppa, and he's asked by God to go east to Nineveh, it's only about 900 kilometers. So God is saying, go here to Nineveh, and Jonah says, no way, I'm going this way, 4,000 kilometers west to Tarshish, in the opposite direction. He doesn't go to just like a neighboring other city. He's like, no, what's the furthest place I can get, and how do I get there? Tarshish, let's go there. And so as a prophet, Jonah's a prophet. Dove, son of faithfulness, is a prophet. He's supposed to be standing in the presence of God, sharing the message of God to people. Instead, he's fleeing from the presence of God. He doesn't want to be a prophet. And he's going to Tarshish. Tarshish. It's hard to say. Say it ten times. Not right now, later. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him 
How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots. It was just this superstitious way of figuring out what to do. They cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down onto us? They demanded, who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Pause there for a second. Now, Jonah knows about God. He knows who God is. He's, he's the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all the land. But his behavior contradicts what he knows about God, who made the sea and the land. Continuing verse 10, the sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this, is, this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. And don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent the storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked up Jonah, threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three night. So the storm is threatening to rip this ship apart. And the people on the ship are freaking out. They're praying to their gods. They go, oh God of the wind, oh God of the storm. And this is how they think. This is what they call pagans. Pagans have gods for everything. The God of the ocean and the God of the birds. And they're praying to all sorts of gods. They're crying out, God, save us. And they're thinking, okay, well, who else is on this boat? There's a sleeping dude downstairs. Okay, who's your God? Where are you from? Who do you work for? Pray to your God. Maybe he'll stop it. How do we appease our God so that this will stop? And Jonah says, well, in what sounds like a great act of selflessness, just throw me overboard, and then this will stop. It's all my fault. First of all, this is not selfless. It's very selfish. First of all, you can't throw yourself over the ship. Second of all, you just just don't want to go to Nineveh. Still, it's still selfish. This is not selfless. He's He's, he's totally gone mad. He doesn't want to be a prophet. And so just, just, just throw me off. That's the right thing to do. And actually, when he says that, you'll notice that the sailors didn't do it initially. They're like, well, if your God is doing all this, I don't know if we want to throw you off because what's your God going to do to me? So they just rode faster until they realized they couldn't escape the storm. They're like, okay, oh God. They start worshiping God now. The pagans who had their gods of the ocean, of the birds, of the seas. They're like, they start worshiping God. And they're like, oh God, oh God of Jonah, oh Yahweh. That's the formal name. Please 
don't hurt us because of what we're about to do to this man. You have your own reasons, but we're going to toss him over now. Don't hurt us. And the storm stops. Jonah was right. It's hucked in the ocean. End of story. No, a giant fish comes and eats him. So, it's a fish. We don't know what kind of fish. Some pictures depict a whale, but in, in the Hebrew, the word, I think, is G-A-D, gad. And it just, it's not a warm-blooded type animal. It's like a reptile. It's a big fish. It's a big fish if it can eat a human. Unless Jonah is this big, which I'm assuming he's not that big. A fish comes and swallows him. Now, a legitimate question at this point to ask is, is this story real? It is so ridiculous. It's ridiculous in its beginning. It seems very ironic. And this fish comes. And so if a non-Christian comes and asks, and if this is your first time hearing this story, and you're not familiar with the Bible, it's a pretty crazy story. And he's inside the fish for three days and three nights. Is this story real? I think yes. It's not a poem. It's not like a, like a Humpty Dumpty myth story. It's real. I give two reasons. First, the Old Testament describes Jonah as a historical person. Second Kings, in part of uh, chapter 14, verse 25. The God of Israel had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai. So they refer to him as a historical figure. Now, unless this is some other Jonah of Amittai, there's only one conclusion. This is a historical figure. Second reason, Jesus Christ refers to him as a historical figure. Luke chapter 11, verse 29 to 30. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, as Jesus is teaching, and, and the crowds are wanting to listen to him, he said, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. The Old Testament refers to Jonah as a historical character. Jesus Christ refers to him as a historical character. Therefore, Jonah is a historical story, true, but seemingly unbelievable. But I rest in the fact that it is a real story. It is a real, true story. And it's actually not that hard to believe the story of Jonah if we consider what we've read throughout the Bible up until this point. First verse of the Bible. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So this God created the universe, the stars, everything in it. To free his people from slavery, he sends these ten miraculous plagues to free them from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He heals people. He gives his people food from heaven called manna when they're in the wilderness. It's actually not that hard to believe that Jonah's a real story. It seems like small fish. It's <laughs> a good one. Why did God send this fish? Why did God send a big fish? God wants to bring Jonah back to himself and to the mission he had given him. What's the mission? Go to Nineveh, tell them about my judgment. You, Jonah, go there. Tell them about my judgment. You can't hide from the will of God. Isn't that what Jody just read as the call to worship? Wherever I go, 
Wherever I lay my head, wherever I go here, I go there. There you are. Where are you going to go, Jonah? Silly. Silly Jonah. You can't hide from the will of God. Neither can we. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. You can't hide from the will of God. So as he's in this fish, swallowed, he's in there three days, three nights, he thinks, I should probably pray. He does, chapter 2. I'd be praying as soon as I saw that fish. But he's in there, third night. Then Jonah prayed, chapter 2, first two verses. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. He cried, or he said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, as is Charlie. And he answered me, I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. What he's doing, he's quoting a bunch of psalms. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2, but he's quoting a bunch of psalms. He's praying. He's praying that, Lord, you are in fact God. You do hear me. Even in the belly of this fish, you hear me. And then at the end of chapter 2, God tells the fish, spit him out. Blah! Spits Jonah out onto dry land. Chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. First four verses of chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I've given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, this is his message. This is his sermon. In the Hebrew, it's only five words, but here it's what? Eight? Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Imagine that. Some guy comes into your town. Forty days, white horses are going to be destroyed. You write that guy off as a wacko. And you should probably get no response and you start calling the police. Or you just ignore it. This is what he says. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of who this man is. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. In fact, the king of Nineveh starts worshiping the Lord. The entire city of Nineveh worships God from this message. 100% success. This is the greatest revival in history. Billy Graham has preached to millions. And at one point, I'm pretty sure he preached to one million people in Korea. And he said, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if 3 to 5% of those people made a genuine profession of faith. 100%, Jonah, from this wacky sermon. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Chapter 4. So after the entire city worships God, turns away from their sin and their wickedness, Chapter 4, Jonah's anger. Jonah's angry. Jonah's angry at God. Chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That that is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate. You are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted 
will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? What's Jonah talking about? His enemies, an entire city, worships God, turns from their ways. And how does Jonah react? Not with celebration, not with a party, but anger. He's upset at God. He's like, God, I knew you were going to do this. This is why I ran away. I ran away because you're so compassionate. I knew you wouldn't destroy them. I knew you're merciful. You're slow to anger. That's why I went to Tarshish. I knew you were going to do this. You know why he's mad? Because he hates the Assyrians and he's a racist. That's essentially he hates the Ninevites. He hates the Assyrians. God is like, do you have any right to be angry about this? Who are you, Jonah? Dove. I don't know if God would be that sassy but I would. And then so he's moping around Jonah. He's sitting on some hill or something and it's really hot. And God, God makes a, like a, a tree, a bush to give him a little bit of shade and Jonah's happy. Yeah, this is good. I like this shade. This is what happens in chapter four. I'm giving you a paraphrase right now. <coughs> makes this tree, covers him, gives him shade. He's like, yeah, this is great. And then God also then makes a worm and the worm eats the tree, and it takes the shade away. And then Jonah, all of a sudden, well, let's pick up verse 10. He, Jonah's all mad and upset. He wants to die again. Verse 10, then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, but you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Grabbing Jonah's heart. He's like, you mad at this plant? You had nothing to do with this plant. You didn't bring this plant here. You care more about this plant than the city of Nineveh. Over 120,000 people. Some say over 600,000. I care about those people. Those are my people. I love everybody son of dove, racist coward. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Jonah is a picture of Israel at the time. Deeply selfish, only thinks about the own nation, doesn't think about anybody else, doesn't care about anyone else. He is the perfect snapshot of what Israel is like then. He doesn't want Nineveh to repent. And this is where we get the gospel foundation. This is where we get the good news foundation. There is this direct comparison of Jonah and Jesus. And we'll begin with the Ninevites. God made a promise to Abraham, one of his people, one of his first people. He said, I'm going to, through, through you, I'm going to bless the world. That many will be blessed around the world, not just your people. And so as we're reading about the Ninevites, there's this anticipation of this wide-scale, global people coming to worship God, not just this pocket of Israel, but the Ninevites, but people in the Yukon, but people in Singapore, but people in Africa, but people in the most unreached places in the world. They all will come to worship God by faith. The Ninevites is this picture 
In the New Testament, they're not known as Ninevites. They'd be called the Gentiles. You had the Jewish people, and you had non-Jewish people. Non-Jewish people would be considered Gentiles. And God is saying to his people, go welcome the Gentiles into this family. Go tell the Gentiles about the good news of my son. They are welcome into this family. And this is why we have this global message. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. The Great Commission. If you are a Christian, this is your mission. This is your job. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of some nations. No, all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go into the world, not just a particular people group, not just a particular personality, everybody. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. A global God, God cares about the world. That's the Ninevites. And the storm, what does the storm represent? Again, Jonah was a literal story, but there are beautiful, beautiful comparisons that God has made through his writing in the Bible to just make it so amazing. So the storm of God's judgment came upon Jonah, who was trying to run away. God sent a storm to get Jonah's attention. And he had no ability to escape the storm, no matter how hard he tried or the sailors tried. And there's a storm of God's judgment upon each of us who are fleeing from the will of God to do our own will. That storm of his judgment, the full fury and wrath of his holiness and his justice will fall upon each of us with fullness, eternally, inescapable, unless unless a rescuer comes, unless we depend on his rescue, his rescue plan to save us from the storm. God brought the storm to Jonah, and there's a storm in our life. And there's a storm story in the New Testament. It's in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. I'm not going to read it, but, Je- but Jesus is on a boat with his disciples. And the disciples are freaking out. And Jesus is doing something very eerily similar to what Jonah was doing on the boat. What was Jonah doing on the boat? He was sleeping. What was Jesus doing on the boat? Sleeping. Never a coincidence. Jesus wakes up, and he calms the storm. The storm, be quiet. Stop. And as you're reading that, as you're one of the original readers reading that, you think, wow, God stopped the storm in the story of Jonah. Jesus stopped the storm here. Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who will absorb the wrath. He is the one who will stop the storm of God's wrath upon our life. Christ was thrown into the storm of God's judgment 
so that through faith in his sacrifice, we could be forgiven and that we could be saved and that we could be restored to God. Which brings me to my third and final comparison. The fish. We had the Ninevites. We had the storm. We have the fish. Jonah's rescue from death provides this analogy for the resurrection of Christ. And I'm not inventing this comparison. Jesus himself makes it. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Whereas Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, this is another name for God, another name for Jesus, be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Someone greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites repented from this message, this five-word message. The message of God is Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's come to dwell among us. And he's saying, repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your will and turn to God's will. Stop running away from God. Run to God. Sometimes that's why storms come into our life. When tragedy and affliction and sorrow strike us, where do we run to? We go to a self-help coach. We go to an internet guru. We go to drugs. We go to sex and pornography. Where do we go? We run away from God. Say, run to me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has paid for that storm on our behalf that we can walk in freeness, in fullness, walking with our creator, walking with the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. He's saying, run to me. Do my will. As people read this, this story, this book of Jonah, it was a direct shock to the heart and the question was very, very clear. Do you have compassion towards others? We must have compassion toward others. Because the wideness, the breadth, the depth, the scope of God's love challenges us to the core. It is boundless and it's not limited to just people like us we have to look at our friend groups our social circles who we talk to who we choose to hang out with are they just like us are there others this is what Jonah is asking are you compassionate towards others towards your enemies do you have enemies People make a political platform their enemy. If you're a Democrat, you're an enemy. If you're a Republican, you're an enemy. You vote NDP. Some judge it by race. 
Do you have compassion on your enemies? Those you hate? Those who are different than you? Those who are hard to love? Do you have compassion towards them? Or do we ignore them? We want to go to Tarshish. Tarshish. It's hard. It's a hard word. Please forgive me. And, and then do we get comfortable in our little shaded tree and think, oh, this is good. And we're just deeply selfish. We don't have any care for Nineveh. And when the plant leaves, we complain about the plant. This worm came and ate my tree. Where's my tree? We all have our trees that we want. We want comfort. We want security. We want all these things. And when God is asking us to do a hard thing, like the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of everybody, we go the opposite way. We become hermits. We go insular. We don't care about others. We care about our tree. We kick that worm if we saw it. It's such a striking question that applies to each of us that God asks in the end of verse chapter 11, or chapter 4 in Jonah. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Are we compassionate? We have a God. We have a king who's not dead, who didn't stay in the grave. When he died for us 2,000 years ago, and our shame, our guilt, our running away was nailed to that cross, and he died on that cross, he's not on that cross anymore. He was buried. And then three days later, three days later, he rose again. This is the resurrection. This is the simple the single and most glorious event in human history. If this event is real, the Bible is true and everything God says is true and that changes everything. If Jesus Christ is dead, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest theologians and writers in Scripture, one of the greatest followers of Jesus, he says, then we should be pitied that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. We are dead in our sin, and we shouldn't be here at the church. You shouldn't listen to me talk about this. We're wasting our time. But if he did rise from the dead, if he in fact is the risen king who swallowed up death, who defeated hell, then it changes everything. Who is this man? And where is the body? He's alive. And this is what we celebrate on Easter. Not only his death, which is Good Friday, his sacrifice on our behalf, but his conquering of the grave, where we can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The impact, the results of the resurrection changes everything. We realign everything we do in our life to worship this king, to make him known everywhere, to everyone. The results of the resurrection can't be contained in words. But on Easter Sunday, join us as we explore what that means for each of us 
and consider what the story of Jonah means for us, for you, in showing God's compassion to a very hateful, divided, and polarized world. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your servant Jonah is an incredible story. And it challenges me to the core to reevaluate my life. Am I compassionate? Are we compassionate, Father? Father, there's people listening who, who don't know you, who have questions. Would you break through that barrier, Father, and show how amazing and how great you are, how you control the storms and you created the land and the sea and you've made us for you. Teach us not to run away from your will because we cannot. Teach us to do your will that your name would be glorious and our joy would be found in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.